if we have anyone who's hangry this morning, but if you are, come on back at noon and we'll have lunch together. We have 100 seats set up. Let's count the tables and with the overflow rooms, it's about 100 seats over there. If I would love us to have 150 or 200 people. We'll just spill on here into the worship center and we'll eat in these chairs and that would be great. I would love to see that. Love to have you came back. come back. So we've been in this sermon series, if you haven't been with us the whole time, not today, Satan, we've identified the enemies of the soul as the devil, the flesh, and the world. So a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the devil, last week we were talking about the flesh, and today we're going to talk about the world. John Mark Homer, in his book, Live No Lies, this is a great book, Live No Lies, he formulates it this way, deceptive ideas from the devil. The devil works mainly with lies, deceptive ideas from the devil that play to the disordered desires of the flesh and are normalized in a sinful society, the world. I'm going to ask and answer three questions about the world. Number one, what is the world? What is the world? What does the Bible mean when it talks about the world? Everything in the world, 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. So in the Greek, the original language for world is uh, it's cosmos, from which we get our word cosmos. And cosmos, that can mean, it can mean three different things as used in the Scriptures. Number one, it, it can mean the universe. Number two, it can mean mankind, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. All right, that's John 3.16, that's cosmos. That means humanity, whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But when we say the devil, the flesh, and the world as the enemies of the soul, what we mean is what... John is referring to here in this verse. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Lust of the flesh would be like sexual temptation, also food, those things that appeal to our appetites. The lust of the eyes would be greed, covetousness, envy, things that we see, things that we want. Pride of life is that spirit within all of us. You can't tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. God, you know, that spirit of rebellion that we have. And most commentators realize that John here is referring in some ways back to the original temptation of Eve when she saw the fruit on the tree. She saw that it was beautiful in appearance, so that's the lust of the eyes. It was good to eat, the lust of the flesh, and it would make her wise. That's the pride of life. She wants to be wise. She wants to be better than God or more like God. And so we get all of that. John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, he defines the world in this way, a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. All right, anybody see that in our culture? Does that resonate with anybody? Rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. John Milton's book, Paradise Lost, he puts these words into the character Satan, evil be thou my good, evil be thou my good, echoing Isaiah, 800 years before Christ, Isaiah 520. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Theo Hobson has written a book and he said, what was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. I would add to that. What was universally recognized as rational is now irrational. What was irrational is now rational. For instance, men defeating women in sports is fairness. Puberty blockers and sex reassignment surgery for children is gender affirmation. Colorblindness is racism. Abortion and infanticide is reproductive justice. 
In my news feed this morning, I saw a headline in Oregon. They're doing hysterectomies on men, men having babies. The secular world, which for years has accused the church and Christians as being irrational, is now embracing the most irrational ideas. Again, John Mark Homer nails it. He writes, the secular world's working theory of reality is that human beings are animals simply aided by time and chance to evolve into the dominant species on our planet, right? We, we, we know that. That's the working theory in the secular world. That has implications. Monogamy, therefore, is not natural as we rarely see it in other animals. In fact, men evolved to spread their seed over as many women as possible for the survival of our species. Evolutionary biology's way of saying boys will be boys. In such an idea matrix, the prevailing consensus is sex is just play for grown-ups. What's the big deal? It's just an animal pleasure, no different from hunger or thirst. If you do pursue marriage, that's fine. Be true to yourself. But you should at least live with your partner for a while to make sure you're a good fit and if it doesn't work out, the important thing is to be happy. After all, there's no meaning to life. It's just a glorious accident. And of course, marriage, sexual norms, and even gender itself are all social constructs often created by elitists to maintain power. In 1944, there was a film. In this film, this is what's going on. Here's the plot. As a man is married a wealthy heiress, he's out to get her money. And so he begins manipulating her into believing that she's crazy so she could be consigned to an insane asylum and he can get the money. And this is set during the Victorian age when homes were lit by gas lights. And when he would leave, the lights would wave and they would flicker and she'd tell him when he came back and he said, no, nah, it's just your imagination and he deceived her in other ways. He got her to believe she was a kleptomaniac, she was stealing things, that she was losing her memory and eventually she has a nervous breakdown the movie was called Gaslight. That was the name of the movie. And from that movie, a term has entered into our vernacular, gaslighting. When someone is gaslighting you, it means that they are lying to you, but they are accusing you of doing the very thing that they are doing. They're trying to convince you that you are crazy and that you are irrational, when in fact it's they who are irrational, that you're the bigot when they're the bigot, that you're the racist when they're the racist, that you're the liar when they are the liar. That's Gaslighting. Have you heard that? Our world is one big gaslight. Number one, that's what is the world. Number two, how does the world influence us? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good character. Your parents told you that. Don't play with little Billy down the street. He's a bad influence. You didn't listen, but they were right. Bad company corrupts good character. How does the world influence? Like a virus. Like a virus. Have you heard the term social contagion? Social contagion. Consumer psychologist Dr. Paul Marsden writes, sociocultural phenomena can spread through and leap between populations more like outbreaks of measles or chickenpox than through a process of rational choice. Monkey see, monkey what? Paul Hugoparts, a friend of mine, and he's written an article where he has a hypothesis to try to help explain the dramatic spike in young people identifying as LGBTQ+, which is at 25% now in the high schools. One in four used to be 0.3. Now it's spiked to one in four. How in the world do you explain that? 
Well, he, he has a suggestion. I'm going to read just an excerpt from his article. He says, if judging is the ultimate sin. So in our culture, don't judge me, bro. You can't judge me. Judging being the ultimate sin. He says, if judging is the ultimate sin, how do we indicate that we are not judgmental? What's more? What does the dominant culture around us need to see from us if we are to demonstrate a non-judgmental attitude? In the 90s, we did so by moving away from condemnation toward toleration. Fine. In the 2000s, the standard shifted to affirmation. By 2010, celebration was necessary. And now, now to be seen as a non-judgmental person, especially if you're a part of the younger generation, participation is fast becoming the standard. Now, he uses the example of when he was a young man, and he is a young man even now. He's probably in his late 30s. But when he was in that high school age group, he was sitting in a circle of friends, and they, somebody began passing around a bottle. It was an alcoholic drink of some kind. They were passing around a bottle. He could see that it was coming. It was going from one person to the other. They'd take a drink, pass to the next person, take a drink, coming around. It's coming around to him. Got to decide, what am I going to do? So the bottle gets to him. He simply takes it from the person next to him, and without drinking any, he passes it to the person on his left. But the person on his right looked at him and said, what? You think you're better than we are? All right, and he uses that illustration to make a point. He hadn't said anything, pro or con. He simply had not participated. And by not participating, he was identified as judgmental. By the way, if it had been Bud Light, I'm sure nobody would have taken a drink. Again, John Mark Homer, I think he nails it. He says, the great danger is that we are colonized by our culture. The gravitational pull of the world is hard to resist, in part because it's often so subtle that we miss it. The political scientist Joseph Nye of Harvard coined the language of hard power versus soft power to talk about different types of influence. Hard power is brute force. Hard power eventually sparks a backlash. But soft power is a different beast. It's the ability to shape the preferences of others and the ability to attract. Hollywood is the epitome of soft power. It's done more to change Western mores around sex, divorce, adultery, vulgar, adultery, vulgar speech, and consumerism than most anything simply by making movies that are fun to watch. Another example is the advertising industry, which is an attempt to control our behavior, not through coercion, but through consumerism, simply by appealing to our desires. Rod Dreher called the emerging culture of the West a soft totalitarianism. He wrote, this totalitarianism is not establishing itself through hard means like armed revolution or enforcing itself with gulags. Rather, it exercises control, at least initially, in soft forms. This totalitarianism is therapeutic. It masks its hatred of dissenters from its utopian ideology in the guise of helping and healing. For followers of Jesus in the democratic West, soft power is the greater threat. It's subtle yet corrosive. It eats away at your heart, appealing to your flesh, until you wake up one day and say, dang, I've been colonized. All right, just asking an answer three questions. What is the world? How does the world influence? And number three, how do we resist the world? How do we push back? Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So in each of these three messages, we've been talking about 
spiritual disciplines and practices of Jesus and ways to, to push back. We're talking about the devil and resisting. The devil works primarily through lies. So we said quiet prayer and scripture. That helps to reorient us and center us on the truth. Those are the spiritual disciplines. When we were talking about the flesh, the disordered desires of our flesh, last Sunday we mentioned confession of sin and fasting. That was my little joke about hangry at the beginning. So confession of sin and fasting. Now, as we talk about the world, let's talk about the church, which is not so much a spiritual discipline per se, the church and worship in the church, as it is the milieu or the environment in which we practice these other disciplines. It's the church that's going to help us to discern truth from the falsehoods of the devil. It's the church that's going to help us to push back against the desires of the flesh, to have someone to confess to and with whom to pray and even to fast. It is the counterculture. JMC writes, the church is a counterculture. It's a beautiful resistance to the world and the world's vision as, of life as rebellion against God. The church is the alternative society. It's a group on the margins of the host culture, living in an alternative but compelling and beautiful way, a prophetic signpost to kingdom life and a culture of death. We live in a culture of death. That's the world. The church is a culture of life. We are not only against things, we're for things. We're for life. We're pro-life. We're for life. We're for families. We're for marriage. We're for children. We're for love and joy and flourishing in life. That's the church. Dr. Larry Hurtado is an historian. He talks about that early church, the first church, and how they overcame the paganism of Rome, conquered Rome. They had no leverage. They had no power. How did they do that? He identifies five distinctives of that church that are true of only the church, all five, and the church today. Here they are. Number one, the church was multiracial and multiethnic. Number two, the church was spread across socioeconomic lines, and there was high value in caring for the poor. Three, the church was staunch in its active resistance to infanticide and abortion. As you probably know, in that Roman culture and society, unwanted children were just taken out over to the hillside and abandoned to die by the elements or by the animals. And the Christians, the church, would go out and get those abandoned children, raise them in their homes, and raise them as, as Christians. Number four, the church was resolute in its vision of marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman for life. We talk about traditional values these days, when we're talking about church values, they were not traditional in first century Rome. When Jesus talked about them, when the apostles were talking about them, they were radical values. Number five, it was nonviolent on a personal and political level. The church is a thick web of interconnected relationships where we reinforce each other for life. Again, James Clear. Now, James Clear, his book is Atomic Habits great book, but he writes, convincing someone to change their mind is really the process of convincing someone to change their tribe. If they abandon their beliefs, they run the risk of losing social ties. You can't expect someone to change their mind if you take away their community, too. You must give them somewhere to go. Nobody wants their worldview torn apart if loneliness is the outcome. Right? We're the tribe. The church is the tribe. Now, I was reading a book called The Power of Moments, and that's when I came across this research study. It's well-known, but I figure it must be well-known amongst researchers. I, I had never heard of it, but let me lay this on you. Now, now, follow along with me. There's two stages to this, and there's a kicker coming at the end I bet you won't see coming. 
All right, stage number one, let's say you're part of this research project. So you're sitting here with a group of three other people. There are four of you all together. The researchers show you a series of 20 slides. Your job is to identify the color of the slides, which is easy because they're all blue. So they show you these 20 slides. You say, bloop, 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 20 times. All right, that's first. Now that group breaks up, and you go to another group. So you're sitting with four people. These are different people now. And they show you a series of 20 color slides. These slides are all red. However, this time, three of the people in your group of four are plants. They're confederates. They're part of the, the research group. You're the guinea pig. And when they show you each of these slides, these three identify the color as orange each time. It's red, but they say, so they say orange, 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 and then they look at you. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to say red or are you going to say orange? Now you say, I'm going to say red. I'm, it's, it's a no-brainer. I'm that kind of person. So, all right, maybe you would. But if you did, you would be in the minority because the majority of the people caved and they called the slides orange 17 out of 20 times. Or was that illustrate? We're susceptible to peer pressure. We probably already knew that. That's phase one. All right, now let's phase two. That's the second part of this research study. Same kind of scenario. All right, you're in a group of four, and the researchers show you the blue slides, 20 blue slides. Same deal. You've got to identify the color. Only this time, there's a plant in the first group, only one plant. And he identifies the slides as green. So you say blue, 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 and this guy says green. And you think, well, maybe, maybe he's colorblind. I don't know. But okay. So you stick to guns. You say blue every time. After all, you're in the majority of this group, right? So we'll call him brave but wrong guy. It's brave but wrong guy. Okay, so that done, you leave that group, and you go to a second group. You're in that group of four, and they're going to show you the 20 red slides. Once again, there are three plants who identify the red slides as orange. Orange, orange, orange. Then they look at you, and what do you say? The majority of time, you call it red. You do not cave. You call it red. But you're in the minority. In the first stage, the person caved 17 out of 20 times. What's the difference? The researchers believe the difference was brave but wrong guy. That even though he was wrong, because he was willing to stand up for what he believed, and you were exposed to that, that exposure made you a little bit more courageous. The researchers say exposure to a dissenting minority view, even when that view is in error, contributes to independence. Did you see that coming? What does that mean? To me, all right, here's my translation, my application. We need the church. We are the minority culture in a majority culture. We're the culture on the sidelines. We're standing up or trying to for what we believe is true, for what corresponds to reality, and we need exposure to other people who are courageous because courageous is contagious. 
Just like these other social contagions, courage is contagious. Bravery is contagious. And we need each other in the church. If, you're, if you think, I'm that guy, I'm always going to call it the way I see it, great. We need you in the church. We need your bravery. We need your courage. And if we're not that person, we're the person who was going to cave, we need the church. We need to be in the church. Aside from that, the church is where life flourishes. Let me read you one more quote here from Robert Putnam. The single most common finding from a half century's research on life satisfaction, not only in the United States but around the world, is that happiness is best predicted by the breadth and depth of one's social connections. I want to show you, as I conclude the message today, I want to show you the baptisms that we had this past Sunday, a couple of baptisms. And then I want to make an application on this theme right here. So this here is Carl and Elaine Van Camp who are being baptized. All right, Carl and Elaine Van Camp. They're winter residents. They've already gone back to New York. Uh, we sent them as missionaries to New York, and that's where they're going to spend the summer. But uh, they, they were sprinkled as infants, by the way. One was sprinkled in a Catholic church, one in a Protestant church. They've come to understand a biblical baptism is an immersion in water where you're expressing your own faith in Jesus, your own repentance, right? Because their parents, when, when someone's parents sprinkles them as an infant, what those parents want for their children is to grow up to be Christians. That's the desire that they are expressing. And by obeying the gospel in that way, they are fulfilling, among other things, their parents' desire. They're honoring that desire. So they say, good for the Van Camps. Now, Standing next to them here in the picture over on the left is Nancy and Joe Goyette. Nancy and Joe invited the Van Camps to come to church. And, and the Goyettes have only been members for less than a year, but they invited them to come to church. Standing next to them is Tim and Debbie Winans. They're, Tim's a pastor in this church, one of our pastors, and Debbie is his wife. Next to them is Tom and Sally Guy. Tom taught... Uh, the Van Camps in the Discover class. He taught them. He actually also taught the Goyettes standing next to him in the Discover class because he teaches the Discover class immediately following the 830 service, and, and they came out for the baptism. Then you've got Scott Blount there, associate minister. He helps people get involved in small groups and ministries here in the church. And then on, finally over here on the end, you've got Dallas Chesteen, one of our very newest members. He himself was just baptized this past month, and he came out because he doesn't know those folks but he realizes how important a baptism is. And he wanted to come out and affirm them. He gets it. He gets it. He knows these baptisms are the most important thing that are going on. The church is an interconnected web of relationships where we strengthen each other and we push back against the world and we walk together in faith. I'd love to see eight or ten people here. I'd love to see a hundred people. Every time we have a baptism, come out there and affirm to the newest Members, we love you. We're your tribe. We're a part of you. We're going to do this together. If, if you're a member of this church, if you're a member of this church, stay put, dig in, and build relationships. If you are looking for a church family, come and be a part of our church. We want you. We need you serving with us and walking with us. And, and you should be searching for a church family because we all 
need one. And if you're about to head back north, I can't tell you how many people told me today, I'm leaving on Tuesday, I'm leaving on Tuesday, I'm going back up north, I'll see you in three or four months, whatever, see you in October, great. Be the church where you're going. Make sure you're rooted and locked in with a church because everybody needs a church. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the church. We know that we need each other. We know, Lord, we need uh, our courage is, is not, not always spot on, and sometimes we cave just like other people do. And so we need to borrow a little courage, a little faith, a little trust, a little help from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And thank you for Vero Christian Church, Lord, and we pray that we can be that for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.